Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, Abby. That, I will say that song, Doug, that we sang, was very, I felt very rock and rollish with that. Thank you. Let us pray. Father, Thank you that we've now uh, had an opportunity to really engage this passage. Lord, uh, we all read a text like this and feel both encouraged but fear. Teach us to read the passages of your scripture as sons and daughters. We have nothing to fear. And I pray that as we teach through this passage that it will become a very hopeful thing that you, Jesus, are our King. In your name we pray. Amen. All of us have heard of Robin Hood, right? We all know Robin Hood. And I, at a time in my life, I may have been about 12 or 13, I received a book about Robin Hood that had really great illustrations in it. And that was awesome because it, it really went, it tried to convince me that it was a true story. It wasn't just a myth. And, and so I don't know. Maybe we can ask Abby later. Is Robin Hood real? Did he really exist in your homeland? I don't know. But one thing I know is one of the strands of thought is this, that while Richard the Lionheart, the good king, was on the third crusade, okay, which already disqualifies him from being a really good king, but he's on this crusade, leaving behind England in the hands of his brother John, a bad king, rises Robin Hood, right? He's the defender of the, of the oppressed. And so he doesn't just steal from rich folks, but he steals from those that are unjust, right? And he provides for the those that have been oppressed. And we like that story, especially Americans. I think British people like it as well. That's where it got started. We really like it too. That's what we seek to do. That Down with the king. Um, and as we look at this psalm, it is a messianic psalm. What that means is this is a psalm about the future king of Israel. And what we find, I think as Americans, if you're like me, at first we're kind of like, I don't know. This whole kingship thing's a little bit uncomfortable. And we really like people like Robin Hood because he stood up. He could stand up in the absence of the kings doing their jobs and provide. And, and I think as Christians, this is often our approach, whether we mean to or not, is we really do lack our trust in Jesus. And so often in our lives, we're picking up the pieces. We're trying to do the things that we think are right, okay? But we're also doing really bad things. Either way, we're doing them out of this sense of distancing ourselves from the true king. But the Bible is clear that we are made for a true king. 
And that's what I hope we'll discover in this passage, in this psalm, that we will see that Jesus is the true King. And that life is found when we live under the rule of King Jesus. Now, bear with me on that. You're going to hear that, you may bristle, you may love it, but let's work through this passage and see the graciousness and the beauty of our King. So we'll look at three things. We're made for a King, we resist the King, but we are free to approach the King. Those are our three points. So we're made for a King. This summer we're going through the Psalms, and we're really looking at praying through the Psalms. We're not just going through them, we're trying to learn not only the Psalms we preach on Sunday, but in general, how do we pray through Psalms, and how do we meditate on the Psalms? Last week we started with Psalm 1. And this week, Psalm 2. We only have 148 left, so we're getting there. Um, how many weeks are in the summer? I haven't even looked. Um, no, we're doing Psalm 1 and 2 because they really are like book covers, and the front and the back to the whole book of Psalms. And Psalm 1 dealt with really the individual coming to the Lord and meditating on the truth of Scripture, of Christ in Scripture. But Psalm 2 is dealing with Christ's rule in our lives. And, and, and what we're going to find in Psalm 2 is it's describing a coronation of sorts. When you read Psalms, you'll often realize you're reading about something that sort of had Old Testament implications. King David. This is attributed elsewhere to King David. And his coronation. But also the future King Jesus. And what we have to do as readers is try to figure out how to sort of tra- traverse both of those strands. And what you have with thinking back into the Old Testament in a coronation, when a king came into power, they weren't just like a president or someone really famous. Those aren't two of the same things, I know. But they were, they were the general. They were the leader. They were the head of the army as well. And often, when a new king comes into power, the nations around think, hey, this might be our shot. This is our chance. Let's, let's go get them. Let's move in. And so they rage and they plot in vain. But Israel, we know their history, wants a good king. Do you know the history of Israel wanting a king? Remember, God provided judges, but God was the king. They didn't like that. And if you read through the judges, the cycle over and over, they did what was right in their own eyes, and then God brings a judge to help them and rescue them. Well, finally, Samuel, who's the last judge, he's a prophet, brings brings in the first king. So Israel's begging for a king, begging for a man to be their king. And we're like that. We really do want kings, right? Um, that's really weird in America. But you think about the fairy tales we're drawn to, like King Arthur. Again, we didn't originate it. Abby, I know that. But we like it, right? We make movies about it, right? Robin Hood and these kind of things. How about our basketball stars? King James, right? He's not President James or Senator James, although I've heard somebody call it. But, but King James, maybe because of the Bible, I don't know. How about Elvis, the king? We have this fascination with this idea of someone being at the top and being really good at what they do. But of course, we know Saul let the nation of Israel down. And what does God say to Samuel? But I am looking for a king after my own heart. Still the fact that they needed a king. And it appeared to be David. David, of course, was a much better king than Saul. Right, But let's look at the earthly King David. Even if nothing went wrong in his reign, we know that there would come a point where he dies. He's a guy. He's a human. right? So there is that issue. But things went really wrong with David. 
right? He, at one point, when the kings go out to war, he stays back. That's really bad. He didn't go out and lead his army. He hung back. And he enters into an affair and then has her husband murdered, right? And what does that lead to? His own son, Absalom, attacking him and creating civil war and his own grandson dividing the kingdom. So David, as good as a king as he was, was not the real king. And so as we think about this psalm and we come to kingship psalms, your first step praying through the psalm is to go, do I want a king? Do you recognize your love and lust for some sort of king? And I say that, the word lust especially, because we do draw toward human kings. Right? Leaders. Isn't, don't we start talking about the election of, of a president like the day after the one's inaugurated? All right, only four more years, everybody. I mean, it just starts right in, right? And we set these people up to be our salvation, right? That every problem that happens is the president's fault, or the Supreme Court's fault, or the Senate's fault, or the House. What about um, religious leaders? This week we had a very sad story about a PCA pastor, nationally, internationally known, entering, confessing an affair. And that lets people down. Because really, on accident, we make our religious leaders our king. So be aware as we move into this discussion that there's a, that you need and want a king, but often we're choosing wrong people. We're choosing man over God. Okay, so that's point number one. We are made for a king. But as we move a little bit deeper, I want to draw out the fact that we resist the king. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? When you read things like this in the Psalms, what will make the Psalms very boring and ineffective for you is when you read that and go, well, I don't do that. I don't rage or plot in vain. Let's move on. That must have happened thousands of years ago. Poor them. Jonathan Edwards says in his resolutions, anytime he sees a sin in another person, his resolution was, whether he followed it perfectly or not, we'll know in heaven, is... He would look at himself and say, how do I engage in that sin? And here's the point. When you read that, do you see yourself as raging against your king? Do you see that in you? Look at verse 3. What is wrong with these nations? What's wrong with these rulers? What are they upset about? Verse 3, let us burst their bonds. It's that these people, these kings and rulers and people, do not want to be tethered by the king of Israel. They do not want to be under the yoke of Yahweh. That feels like a burden to them. Right? And so they resist it. And my question is, do you recognize that you actively resist God? Does that sound theologically correct? Well, we sing things like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. All the time, we sing it loud. Prone to leave the God I love, but we don't really think about it. Every sin we engage in, is it not us breaking the bonds of our king? Saying, I don't want you. I was even watching a a study, watching a show talking about a study, on texting while they drive. People who text while they drive, you people, I don't do it. It says there's an addiction that's created in this. Like It's almost like a drug. They studied it, and there's something about the fact that they're doing something they're not supposed to do that creates the same release chemically as taking a drug. Isn't that fascinating? That simply by doing something you know that you shouldn't do, you feel a high. Isn't that a type of resisting the king, of wanting to just throw off the bonds and the break of the yoke around you? 
I also read a quote in the last few weeks, a person who I think might be an atheist, and it was, it was actually a chat or a, a small statement where he says, why would I, even if God is good, even if my life went better, even if religion were great, why would I ever want to follow a God that made me follow Him? And I thought, that is the most interesting statement. We have become so enamored by our view of autonomy that we would say, even if everything went great, I don't want it if it's forced upon me. Now, if someone shows up at your house with a $10 million check, says, this is yours. We chose you at random. And we're putting, we've already deposited it into your account. How many people, how many, would that guy really say, I don't want that, I didn't choose that. I don't want it. I, if, if I had chosen that, I would love $10 million. But because you put it into my account, please, I don't want that. I want freedom. And we really misunderstand freedom because we think freedom is having no responsibility. And God looks like responsibility to us. And so in our flesh, Christians, of course non-Christians as well, we really do enter into this relationship where we resist Him. And we try to get along, but we don't really want His rule in our life. I had a conversation with my dad, probably the hardest, strangest conversation with him. Uh, and I've wondered, do I share these kind of things? Because then you feel more sorry for me than you do understand the passage. But we had this hard conversation. I was probably 16 or 17. We just finished a round of golf. We're sitting at Lincoln. No one's around. And he begins to tell me kind of why he is the way he is. How is my father? I hope he's not listening to this sermon. But he usually doesn't. Uh, he's never. He's not a Christian. Okay. He's not an atheist. He's very smart. But his big thing in life is freedom. And basically what he said to me is, the reason I wasn't a better dad and I'm not a great dad is because I'm never going to do anything that takes away my freedom. So if I have to bend, if I have to do effort, if I have to miss a golf round or whatever, or not have my next whatever I want, then that's taking away my freedom and therefore it's a bad thing. That's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. But I think that's really what we long for in our flesh. I know I grew up thinking that someday I hope to be wealthy enough to have no responsibility. That's what I wanted. I want you to imagine, I really remember just fantasizing about, now, I wanted to do things and maybe do great things, but not because I had to. I wanted freedom. I didn't want to be under any yoke, any burden. And you just think, that's really the definition of freedom we really have. So often, that's where we are. Now, you might be, here's the, here's the obvious position in the room. Ryan, you're talking to non-Christians. And I'm really not. I mean, I am. If you're not a Christian, this is true of you. But if you're a Christian, this is true of you. The part of us that's the flesh, the part of us that we live out of, doesn't, we don't wake up going, King Jesus, rule my life today. What is it you have me to do today? I will get, give away my riches? Sure. Right? Change my whole schedule? Quit my job? We don't do that. We hope and pray that what He wants for our lives is kind of what we want already. And so we repent and we approach Him but I want to draw your attention to where this is true. Even in Scripture, if you're sitting there going, I do like King Jesus. I do like it when He rules my life. First of all, I want to say I believe you. And that's wonderful. But please, if we don't own up to the part of us that doesn't believe that, our Christianity becomes ineffective. We 
become boring, complacent Christians. How do you like statements like this? Be holy as I am holy. You know, we like, in other words, the concept of God, or even the idea of Him ruling us, but when He starts to really rule us, don't we get really upset? How about when Jesus says, you must hate your father and mother and brothers in view of your love for me? Do we like that? Do we like it when he turns to the rich young ruler and says, sell everything and give to the poor and follow me? Don't we like to explain those things away? Aren't we sort of like, that can't be what King Jesus really wants? How about being filled with love and joy? Are you a person who loves to be around other people and share Christ? Are are the fruits of the Spirit just pouring out of you? And let me just say this. Obviously, for most of us, yes and no. If you're a Christian, then for everything I just said, there's degrees. But by and large, we resist Jesus as our King. And you have to see that in order to even possibly want to grow even a little bit. Do you see that? When you confess your sins, what are you confessing? Technicolored things? Or are you going deeper? into the sin beneath the sin. Jesus, if I'm honest, I view you as a tyrant. I see you as a killjoy. And I want you to stay away from me. How many of you are following Jesus so that you don't need to really get near to Jesus? How many of you are trying to do Christian things so you don't have to really expose your brokenness and your sin? Do you see that you resist the King? And then thirdly, now the good news, we can approach the king. There is a lot of grace in this passage. It's amazing. In fact, I want to draw your attention to verse 4. It sounds so mean. And the song we sang really picked up on the meanness. And it is mean. Listen to this. He who sits in heaven laughs. Doesn't that just sound downright maniacal? And And he says, and he holds them in derision. And then he speaks in his wrath. Wow, what does he say? What's this awful thing he says out of his wrath? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's pretty awesome. He didn't come out and say, you're done. I'm destroying you. No one will ever know you existed. No, he starts to talk about the true king. And by the way, how do we know this is not just King David? The word for anointed in verse 2 is Messiah, which means Messiah or Christ. Again, that can apply to other people. But the whole thing really becomes clearly about Jesus when it says in verse 7, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. And I will make the nations nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. There's a Gospel message in that. For those of us that hold Him in derision, He says, I have a plan. And look at verse 9. You shall break them with your rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Again, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I won't point out any Hebrew scholars in our midst. Not that we have any. But I will say, the good scholars that I've read would say there, the word for dash can be interpreted as dashed or scattered. And that the real idea, and verse 10 picks it up, is that God is saying, you are going to be scattered. Your effectiveness will be taken away. A little bit like Tower of Babel. That you're not going to be this amazing vessel of nations. You're, you're, you're going to be, see the futility in trying to, to live apart from God. You'll be scattered. And look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord. They're being invited in. Serve the Lord. 
with fear. But listen, and rejoice with trembling. Whatever those words mean, it is not a bad thing. Fear and trembling and joy. We can approach the King. So, if you are here and you are not a Christian, then you should identify like the believers saw in Acts. By the way, this is quoted. Acts 3, or excuse me, Acts 4. Right after um, Peter and John were set out of prison and they're gathering together, the believers pray for boldness in Acts 4. And they choose this psalm. Isn't that beautiful? They pray the psalm. And it says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices. That is, when the other believers heard the story, and they praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, so he's he's describing this psalm to David, your servant, you said by the Holy Spirit, quote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. So, if you read this, if you're not a Christian, you need to see yourself as one raging against the king and being welcomed in. And we'll talk more about that as we go. But if you are a Christian and you hear this, I hope you'll begin to hear that God is saying you have been welcomed in. As a Christian, you resist Him but He's welcoming you into repentance. Kiss the Son. Return. Right? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. One of my... uh, I haven't quoted Seinfeld in a while. So here we go. I feel like it's just time. There's a Seinfeld episode where... I don't think I've done this one before. Maybe I have. Where, you know, one of the ongoing themes is Jerry and and his girlfriends. And there's one... Everyone has a problem. You know, he's really critical. Okay? One of the girlfriends, his problem with her is, in certain lights, she's beautiful. But then they'll go to a restaurant or somewhere else, and the light's a little different, and she's, he's just like, whoa, what just happened? Okay, that's really mean. Let me make it personal. I think just for myself that's true. Like, have you ever looked in the mirror and thought, okay, I didn't realize I was that tan. I look pretty good. And in another light, you're like, oh, my gosh, I'm like 800 veins. Or, you know, I'm just, I'm, my hair, I'm getting, you know, we, light, right? We look different. And that's how the gospel is, right? The nations are upset because what they see as a yoke of slavery is a yoke of freedom. And what God is not calling us to and is calling us to freedom, Augustine says we're not being made free from something, but we're made free for something. And he's saying when you approach the king, you're going to begin to see the new light. But all of a sudden, God is not a burden. And his law becomes beautiful. Right, And He draws you in. And you can begin to serve and love Him in Christ. And you can, it says in verse 12, kiss the Son. And listen to the final verse. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. Flourishing. But there's these two little verses. Two little lines, actually. One verse, two little lines. Between kiss the Son and blessed are all who take refuge. You see those two verses? They still make you cringe, don't they? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Can you imagine Jesus reading the psalm? What do you think went through his mind? Reading the psalm over and over. Do you think he thought, I can't wait until the day 
and I can unleash my wrath? Or do you think he thought that wrath is about to be unleashed on me? Isn't that the Gospel? Jesus is saying, oh, there will be wrath. There will be wrath, but I will be taking that wrath. Christian, you and I deserve wrath. Not just for what we did before we came to Christ when we were 8 or 12 or 20 or 30 or whenever, but for the stuff we've even done today. For how boring we bored we've been at worship. is enough! And Jesus is saying, I took that wrath on. Jesus knew. He maybe didn't know the details. But He knew how Rome crucified its people. Or how Rome crucified anyone. He knew that. But you know what he was mostly afraid of and mostly aware of? That his own father would turn his face away and pour his wrath out on him. This is the Gospel. That we are drawn in and that he has taken the wrath and now we can approach the king not as someone who is a law keeper, but as someone who has completely kept all the laws because of Christ. We are now free to say, King Jesus, I want to be hidden in you and take refuge in you. Is that your view of Christianity? Or is your view of Christianity trying to get it together? Trying to become someone that can approach the king? Trying to get your ducks in a row? That is not the view of Christianity in the Bible. That is always the outflow of the Spirit. That is always the fruit of what Jesus does in you. It will come, and it needs to come. And to the degree that we are running from Jesus, or maybe let me say it this way, to the degree that we're in sin, it's because we're running from the King. And that's the key. The key is through repentance and faith, we come back to the Son over and over again, daily. Right? Hour by hour. Because of what He's done for us. So is that your, that's the way we read the Scripture. And I hope that's your view of this text. So where do we find you this morning? Are you meditating on the Word of God like we talked about last week? Are you spending time in the Word? Where is your Christianity? Are you a little bored? you kind of gotten dry? Here's, the, here's what this passage is telling us. It's because we are sick and we're running from the rule of the king. Is that your, do you understand that? We, and here's the key. Don't, here's what the world, here's what your flesh would tell you. Aha. So if I turn around and start obeying, will that change everything? No, that's the, that's even worse. What does the text say? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. He's the king. You're coming to him as the king like the woman who comes down and breaks the jar of alabaster and weeps and starts to wash his feet, you're doing that because of his love for you. There's nothing you could ever say that's going to shock him. He knows everything you've done. And the biggest sin that you and I commit is not that stuff that would shock everybody if we told them. Though that's bad stuff. Let's not let's repent of that. It's the fact that we think Jesus won't forgive us for it. It's the fact that we believe he won't accept us. There's just something a little off about us. So we're going to go this round on our own. Still trying to be Christian. We're going to go this round a little bit on our own. And so here's the, here would be my application for this sermon. In the morning, or whenever you come before the Lord, confess. 
here's the confession. Jesus, I confess that I hate in my nature your rule of my life. I see the beauty and the blessing that you give and I see it as a curse. Will you change my heart? Will you open my eyes? Will you help me to see that I'm running from things that are good for me? I'm running from you. You don't have to get it together. You don't, if you know, if you tarry, I'm going to continue the song. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you'll never come. So you pray, give it to me, Jesus. Give me this belief in you. Give me this desire to pray. That's your first prayer. Isn't that beautiful? You know, it's like showing up to a job and going, okay, the first thing I'm going to tell you is I don't have a clue what I'm doing here. Perfect. Come in. That's the gospel. Okay, I I don't belong here and I don't even want to be here, but I, I think I should say that to you. Perfect. Let me love you. Let me show you. Let me change your heart. Kiss. And Jesus is the only king that will return the kiss and embrace you and welcome you in.